Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the best of intentions for a new cloud contract at GSA, but... Creating a BPA in a marketplace is a marketing tool where I think they could just be just as effective in marketing the prime contracts at the schedule level. Helping agencies help themselves to get the data dollars they need. Developing use cases that demonstrate the value proposition that we're talking about, that's really important for ensuring that resources are available and sustained over time. And the puzzle pieces to turn around an agency's operations. As a CFO and the leadership of these agencies, the number one thing is to get everyone working together. It's Tuesday. Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. FedRAMP would become the law of the land under a new bill to secure cloud computing across the federal government. The Federal Secure Cloud Improvement and Jobs Act would require the General Services Administration to begin automating the accreditation process within a year. The legislation is similar to the FedRAMP Authorization Act the House has passed three times. The Navy Fleet Forces Command will become the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff if the Senate confirms him. The White House sent the nomination of Admiral Chris Grady to the Senate Armed Services Committee Monday. Admiral Grady would replace Air Force General John Hyten as vice chair. General Hyten scheduled to retire later this month. A pilot program to show the value of data for policymaking is one of the proposals from the Advisory Data for Evidence Building Committee. John Hewitt Jones is writing about the committee and its proposals at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on today. What is the Advisory Data for Evidence Building Committee and what does it do? Welcome. Um, Well, the committee was set up uh, as part of the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018, um, and it basically has a mandate to uh, to report to OMB and to the White House on on measures, concrete measures that will actually improve the use of data for policymaking within across every government agency. So it has quite a wide ranging mandate. You write in your report on fedscoop.com, the suggestions would be overseen by the chief statistician of the United States. We haven't had one of those since January of 2020. Is there a chief statistician choice on the horizon that we know of? As of yet, um, we, we don't know of an appointment of, of the chief statistician role. The role is looking to be filled at this moment. John Hewitt-Jones, more on fedscoop.com. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts like the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite virtual conference. It's Thursday, November 18th, and I hope you'll join me there too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like Zero Trust and Endpoint Detection and Response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The General Services Administration's closing in on a new marketplace for cloud computing services. Laura Stanton of GSA's Federal Acquisition Service says a request for information is coming soon. Roger Waldron's president of the Coalition for Government Procurement. He's writing about the GSA's cloud future at the Far and Beyond blog at thecgp.org. Roger, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's the problem that you see that GSA is trying to solve for here with this uh, cloud? marketplace uh, RFI that's coming. Welcome, Roger. Uh, First of all, thanks, Francis. Uh, It's good to see you again. Um, I think GSA is rightly focusing on cloud. Um, You know, that is the future of uh, federal IT. Um, And 
I think they're trying to, to, as I say, build a marketplace where customer agencies can come and compete requirements and contractors, industry partners can, you know, compete for and win and support customers through the marketplace. The, you know, the question or the concern from an industry perspective is, you know, sort of the acquisition strategy GSA is considering with, uh, you know, these generic, a uh, generic government wide BPA. You write in the blog post that I cited a moment ago, Roger, GSA appears to be focusing on a strategy employing multiple award generic government wide blanket purchase agreements for cloud services, as you laid out a moment ago. Why is that bad? And what would be better in your view, Roger? Well, I think GSA should look to the schedule contracts themselves and those industry partners offering cloud at the prime contract level as the marketplace. The generic BPAs, the concern about generic BPAs, and I've heard, I hear this from companies all the time, and I heard a lot of great positive feedback on the blog, is that they go and compete for the prime contract or, you know, uh, you know, negotiate, spend bid and proposal to get the prime schedule contract. Then they compete for a generic BPA. doesn't have any real requirements under it. They spend BNP for that. And then they get on that. They get the opportunity to then spend more BNP to compete for the specific agency requirements at the task order level. And I think GSA, if in creating a marketplace, enhancing the schedules contracts to the extent they don't have requirements that the B, that the BPA is trying to address from a technical, whether it's FedRAMP or whatever, you know, fix that at the contract level and then just go right to the task order competition for specific agency requirements. This is an area where cloud is highly tail, uh, tailorable to uh, agency specific requirements. And you put in this intermediate step in there that really isn't necessary. And it's just costing both the government and industry more money. What would it look like to take that step out of there? What would it mean for the agencies and what would it mean for GSA and what would it mean for the vendors? Well, it would um, for, I think for GSA and the industry partners, it would reduce their costs because then they could, you know, manage the prime contracts themselves, like at the schedule level, enhance those, create and sense, create the marketplace at the contract level, and then allow um, a more efficient uh, competition at the task order level, eliminating that duplication. And what's the benefit? Ultimately, the most important benefit, it's reduced transactional costs for customer agencies, you know, more an efficient process and ultimately for the American taxpayer as well. You have a flow chart on this blog post and it's hard to portray a, a flow chart accurately or well on a podcast. And I encourage folks to go to the daily We're going to put a, a link there in the show notes today, Roger, so folks can see this flow chart, but basically it lays out what you just described. Level one is the multiple award schedule contracts. Level two is the multiple award generic government wide BPA and level three is the task order. And you, it, it's, it's, it's helpful for me, at least as an amateur, to visualize what removing that step looks like. And it says on this flowchart, removing multiple award generic government-wide BPAs would eliminate the duplication of competition and management found between levels two and three. Is it as simple as doing that? Or would that make something else? Is there some unintended consequence potentially somewhere that would wind up making more complicated, less desirable outcomes for the agencies that are customers of GSA or something like that? Or in your view, is this 
just pretty straightforward and eliminating this step is really just eliminating the step. I think um, it's, it's pretty straightforward, Francis, and you're not, and by no means are you an amateur. Okay. So, <laughs> well, but, <laughs> that's very kind, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I, it is pretty straightforward. I think it's eliminating that step, you know, and then to the extent the BPA includes some sort of technical requirement or vetting, whatever that GSA thinks is important. The question is, why isn't GSA including that at the contract level? If it's that important that you're creating this government-wide marketplace at the next level down at the BPA level, you should talk to industry about what's the appropriate at the prime contract level. Again, because at the end of the day, you're having three different transactions to get to the customer's requirements when it could be just two. All right. You write toward the end of this blog post something that kind of blew the whole thing up for me. And that is, you're right, GSA already has the cloud marketplace. So what's your view of what they're trying to do differently than they're doing it today? Is it just a tweak of what they already have? Or is it is that the whole problem is that they're building something that's similar to something they already have? It's, the problem is they're building their, their redundancy, essentially, with the schedule contracts. And I think part of it is to the extent they tweak and add some sort of technical requirements at the BPA level that should be at the contract level, perhaps. They should have a conversation with industry about that. And then I think a lot of this also goes to marketing, for lack of a better term, um, with regard to GSA programs, creating a BPA in a marketplace is a marketing tool where I think they could just be just as effective in marketing the prime contracts at the schedule level as the marketplace. And I think it would be the power there because these requirements are very, if, you know, focusing on task order requirements is much more efficient than have, again, doing this generic BPA. You're not really winning anything. You're winning the opportunity to compete again for this specific requirement. And then just underpinning that too is, you know, the federal acquisition regulations. And I hate to have to mention those, but they do talk no, you about don't, Roger, <laughs> right? You they like talking talk about, about the, the far, requirement for, <laughs> for multi-agency BPAs that you have to identify the specific agencies and their estimated requirements. And I don't think it, you can, you know, you can sort of say, oh, it's a government wide BPA and, you know, throw a number out there, what you think the estimated requirement is. The whole purpose of that is to get agencies to buy into it and participate in it and share their estimated requirements. So you could have a, so you can have a, uh, a an intelligent competition amongst the potential offerors based on those requirements. The only person in America that I know that has a leather-bound, gilt-edged edition of the FAR, Roger Waldron. Thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Francis. Great to see you. You can find a link to Roger's blog post in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Executive branch agencies have a mandate from the Evidence Act to use data to make decisions about policy. The body that oversees those agencies, though, doesn't. Nick Hartz, president of the Data Foundation, he testified to Congress recently about the data disparity between branches of the government. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The Evidence Act, we've talked about many times before in a number of different fora. Congress is the body that does not have a mandate to use data for its own policymaking. What impact could more data decisions in Congress make on the executive branch? Welcome. 
Francis, great to be back. I mean, this is a huge implication of how we think about evidence-based policymaking in practice. So Congress passed a law back in 2018 that prescribed a lot of requirements for executive branch agencies, but has yet to impose many of those same expectations on itself as an institution. So recently, the, the hearing from the House Modernization Committee delved into this issue to identify what strategies Congress could better adopt for itself. So if we don't have good data to make decisions with, we can't use it in a decision-making process. And at the heart of what Congress is currently interested in in this discourse is how to not just collect and access information, but to actually apply it in very complicated decision-making processes. A really key way of doing that as a starting point is leveraging the resources that are now required in the executive branch. And so we've offered a lot of suggestions about how to, to do that, relying on chief data officers in the executive branch, uh, thinking about the evaluations, the inputs that are produced that benefit from the statistical system all the way through really complicated analytics and AI. All of those resources can be brought to bear as Congress is making decisions, but they have to have access, which is why transparency is so incredibly important for these types of documents and materials. I'm shocked, shocked, I tell you, that Congress has imposed a mandate on the executive branch that it hasn't imposed on itself. That's never happened before in the history of the nation. Never. It's never. really, it's so unique. Um, the good news that I take from your testimony is that this is starting to happen. You have a passage in here about the uh, House Veterans Affairs Committee inviting the CDO from the VA to come and testify uh, about bills on data collection. So they're getting the message, it sounds like. Is that a fair read on my part? I, I think that's totally fair. And this is not to say that Congress does not engage in evidence-based policymaking today. Of course it does. And there are really great examples of laws over the last 20 years that were premised on a, a vast body of knowledge and evidence. However, the information that we're getting in current society and in, in the modern world is just coming at a very fast clip. So we have to think about revising some of these historic processes to meet that new informational demand at the pace information and evidence can be generated. So really key thing here, we should be talking to the chief data officers and the evaluation officers and agencies. So there are very few examples of those individuals participating in dialogues with congressional staffers and members of Congress. And that should change. We should be thinking about these folks as really important resources to understand the knowledge of what's happening in agencies. What do those chief data officers and the data offices at the agencies have to offer Congress that's the most valuable, Nick? Well, as a starting point, uh, when we have questions about what data or what evidence an agency has, the individuals who might now be the most easily able to access that body of information for quick responses, the chief data officers are developing data inventories for their agencies. Evaluation officers are, are developing repositories of program evaluations. So they should be able to provide faster responses to the basic question of, do we know anything about this topic or that topic? And I expect that that speed will increase as, as these inventories become more robust and uh, even more public and transparent in coming years. There's always a money issue with just about everything. You testified this, the majority of recent data laws were authorized without new appropriations to support the efforts they outlined. How much is money a part of this? And it sounds like from what you said there, a lot of what agencies are doing with agent uh, with data right now, they're just having to kind of cobble it together out of whatever they can find laying around. That's right. A, a lot of uh, agencies that have made a progress in the last couple of years have internally reallocated resources because this is a priority. They were able to figure out how to allocate funding. 
but that does not mean they don't need new funding. And I think this is an important message for appropriators in Congress that if you really want to have evidence, you also have to fund it and the infrastructure and the people to, to produce it so it can be useful in the time that it's needed. Well, and Congress also is notoriously unhappy about agencies moving too much money around because they will say, we gave it to you for that reason, for a reason, and don't really smile upon moving money from one thing to another, regardless of the, the, the legal requirements that they've already made. What fixes it? And is there a certain amount? Does it depend on the agency? Does it depend on the mandate? What does it depend on to determine the appropriate amount of funding to be able to get the job done? Well, the answer is it depends. There's no single answer for every single agency, given the great heterogeneity, the variation with which we, we implement programs across government. But we must think about data management, data governance, evaluation activities as a core function of government. So this should be an inherent part of every administrative budget line. And we should always be thinking about allocating a portion of funding for programs to support the knowledge that we need to make decisions going forward. So there are some agencies that have explicit set-aside authorities. You take a certain percentage of an appropriation and allocate it to these functions. And that's a good way of ensuring that there's a floor. There's a minimum number of dollars they are spent on these topics. And we should probably be doing that more across government as well. Are there examples of where this is working well, where an agency has a decent enough amount of funding or has found a decent enough amount of funding, and it's producing and curating and collating the data that it has, that it's deliverable to Congress if they wanted to see it? Well, I think there's no perfect example today of someone who's getting every piece right, but there are really great examples of new chief data offices across government that are leaning in. The Department of Education, uh, under the leadership of Greg Fortelny, the Department of State, the Department of Defense, they are really allocating resources to ensure this is a priority and that they're making vast improvements to the data governance and capabilities in those respective agencies. Not every agency has the same story. So there's a lot of uh, room for progress across government. Is there a a value in your view to demonstrating uh, by an agency to Congress, to its authorizers or appropriators, here's an example of the kinds of things that we can help you do is would potentially being proactive be helpful here, Nick? Absolutely. Developing use cases that demonstrate the value proposition that we're talking about, that's really important for ensuring that resources are available and sustained over time. So if we talk about data often in the abstract, uh, and we, I'm even doing it here, but the more we can offer specific examples of, you know, we collected this information, we applied it in this particular case, we linked across these data assets, and it drove uh, savings or improved program performance. That's how we demonstrate successes that make those who are appropriators or authorizers in Congress or even partners out there uh, working with government more likely to support this endeavor. Nick Hart, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the hearing and find a link to Nick's testimony in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming on Wednesday's show, the data strategy for the Air Force and Space Force. The Chief Data Officer of the Air Force, Eileen Vadreen, is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. 
The Biden administration's choice to become the next controller at the Office of Management and Budget is from Housing and Urban Development. Former HUD Chief of Staff Laurel Blatchford will take the controller job if the Senate confirms her. Herb Dennis is former Chief Financial Officer at HUD. He's author of the new book, Transforming a Federal Agency, Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. Herb, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. Congratulations on the new book. What is the data situation at uh, regarding transforming a federal agency in the chief financial officer's office? Welcome, Irv. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the the, the time. And um, yeah, you know, at HUD, we had a uh, we went through a digital and financial transformation, which I do uh, discuss in great detail in in, uh, in my book. Um, you know, data is a uh, it's a great tool to run a business and to uh, manage your operations. And when you when I went into HUD, there was a whole lot of data for a lot of years that was just sitting dormant in the warehouses. In essence, we extracted it from warehouse, put it in a centralized data warehouse, scrubbed the material so it could be utilized and pushed up into a dashboard. And uh, we were able to analyze 25 years worth of expenditures, grant expenditures throughout the country. And you can slice and dice that data in multiple ways. And it became a real operational tool for the secretary and for the assistant secretaries in running their programs. Um, I suspect there's a lots of um, lots of opportunity within government to uh, implement data analysis and data analytical tools. Uh, and we were excited to do that at HUD, and, I, and I'm excited for the future as they continue to push that. And I hope it continues to be a, a governmental uh, focus. Tell me about that inventory, about how you knew that you found it all, because 25 years of data can be all over the place, I imagine. Yes. And every agency is really, I think, uh, at least trying to wrap its arms around uh, the idea of, if not struggling with, um, the concept of inventorying it all just so you know what your starting point is, right, Irv? Yeah, that's a great point. And one of the things that we were going to do to make before, we're going to make this information public. But we had to make sure that the effort before it went public, it had to be ex- exactly what you're saying. It had to be accurate and we had to validate that. So there's a whole lot of reconciliation that goes on between the data that we have and to our historical uh, financial records. So absolutely, data integrity is number one before you, one, make it public, but also before you act on it in any meaningful way. And we were very close to having that information scrubbed, analyzed and inaccurate and um you know, what we were trying to do is get it current before we pushed it out into the public. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want it out there. It's a year old. We want it within, uh, we're trying to get it within a month, get the information within a month of uh, expenditures versus what's available. What are the top tools that are available to somebody in your shoes to know for sure that the data is scrubbed to the point that you're comfortable to release it to the public earth? Yeah, well, that becomes almost like an audit exercise, right? Um, you have uh, the data that uh, comes in multiple forms, um, and you want to make sure you're reconciling the historical data and the current information to your financial records. And government's filled with lots of data, uh, lots of controls. Uh, you, you know, you have the budgetary information, you have the expenditure information, you have the obligation information, and in a matter is just triangulating all that information to make sure that it's accurate. Well, auditors know how to do this, and, and the financial folks would know how to do that as well. It's a matter of having the discipline and the the IT expertise to uh, to make it all work. But what? that information available and lots of help. 
What did you take away from your experience in in HUD that is useful to somebody that's maybe at an agency that doesn't have the emphasis in grant management, for example, that HUD does, that operates in a different way financially, but maybe operates in, in a similar way as far as the structure that exists within the organization? Does that make sense, or? Yeah, it does. What I would suggest, and I talk about this in my book, one of the big differences between the private sector and government sector, and I have a whole uh, section on that, is um, there, there is a lot of IT, artificial intelligence, RPA uh, um, tools out there that the private sector over the last five to seven years has used very effectively. I think government's a little bit behind in that. And once a once, uh, CFO of an agency understands the tools that are available, uh, then you can start realizing how you can implement that within your current IT systems and, and, and structure. Um, and, you know, at HUD, you'd like to just start all over with the, the IT systems, but that's a half a billion to a billion dollar effort. But what's nice is the technologies that exist today is relatively inexpensive, relatively easy to use, relatively easy to understand how to use it. And there's lots of assistance out there with, uh, with uh, outsourcing help to get you there. So I think as a CFO, the first thing to do is understand what's available, how to use it and then what it can do for you. And then you can start really using it as operational and management tools. One of the most important frameworks, I imagine, for you too was the FATARA legislation that that drove whether you wanted it or not. And I know you wanted it because we've talked about that on a number of occasions before we were still at Hutter. But that really drives that interaction among the CFO, the chief information officer, the acquisition leader at an organization, and the human capital leader. It really tightens that connection among those four specialties in particular, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that I address in great detail in my book is how we went about the digital and financial transformation. And uh, it's a 10-step process that was run concurrently, only had three and a half years to do it. But the number one thing we started with was governance. And the governance is getting all of the disciplines that you just mentioned working together and sitting across the table from each other and figuring out how to implement all this in a meaningful way that we're all working towards the same goal. And that governance structure was very powerful and very helpful to us at HUD. And and the secretary would say it's one of the things that helped him implement his programs is having us all work together. You know, HUD would operate in a very siloed environment prior. I suspect a lot of agencies do. So as a CFO and the leadership of these agencies, the number one thing is to get everyone working together. And I talk a lot about that in in my book. So I'm not picking on HUD's current leadership in particular, but I'm curious, one of the challenges that we've seen in from administration to administration since time immemorial has been somebody builds something and it works and it tends to revert to the mean the next when the next folks come in. How would you suggest to somebody at any agency that uh, they keep whatever momentum, whatever progress has been achieved by the previous folks going into the new organization, the new structure? You know, it's um, that's also an excellent question. Um, and I don't mean to keep referencing my book, but I spend a lot of time. Talking. Sure you do, Irv. Be honest. Yeah, You're yeah. trying to plug it as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I can. There's nothing wrong with it? that. Just go for yeah. it. <laughs> but I talk about the difficulty of sustaining um, improvements and sustaining uh, in government, because in the private sector, you never have a situation where you're wiping, you're wiping out all of leadership in one fell swoop every four or eight years. 
Uh, and you have that in government. So it's very difficult to sustain a lot of this. I think the most important thing in a management challenge when you come into government from the private sector is getting the career people bought into what you're trying to accomplish. And once the career people are bought in, then you have a chance of uh, sustainability in, in these programs. Um, and I do, uh, I, I do write a lot about, you know, what, how to make what we are improvements sustainable. And when you look at the infrastructure of government, uh, Francis, you know, that's not that's not a left or a right thing. That should be very, very uh, bipartisan, right? Um, the, the problem is, you know, there's not a whole lot of business minds embedded in Congress and and and, and, and federal government in general. So, when you talk about spending a couple hundred million dollars to improve infrastructure, um, a lot of people think you're taking away from the mission and, and getting money to where it's needed. And I always tried to explain that the better infrastructure you have, the more money can get out to the people that are in need and who we're trying to serve without the fraud, waste and abuse. And you can get it out there more efficiently. And if that message could be spread throughout Congress and throughout the agencies and throughout federal government, I think you'd have a better infrastructure. Irv Dennis's book is called Transforming a Federal Agency Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. I can't plug it more blatantly than that, Irv. Thanks for coming on the program today. It's great to see you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You can find a link to Irv's book in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms now. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Eileen Vadreen, the Chief Data Officer at the Air Force, is on Wednesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.